Welcome to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live streaming interview series, where leading new thought teachers, speakers, and authors share the intimate stories behind the 10 best spiritual books that inspired them the most on their spiritual journey. From well-known classics to hidden gems you might never have heard of, the No BS Spiritual Book Club saves you time and money by sharing reliable recommendations from those who've walked the path before you. The No BS Spiritual Book Club, the only No BS guide to the best spiritual books to inspire your own journey of self-discovery. Here's your host, founder of the No BS Spiritual Book Club, Sandy Sedgebeer. Hello and welcome to the No BS Spiritual Book Club's live video series and joining me today to share the stories behind the 10 books that influenced him the most on his life path is Jeff Thompson, a playwright, BAFTA award-winning screenwriter who's penned multi-award-winning films. Jeff Thompson is also a prolific author, having published close to 50 books and one of the world's highest ranking martial arts teachers. Jeff Thompson, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you, Jeff. Um, I thought I was a multitasker, but looking at your bio, <laughs> I think you win the crown on that one. And, you know, what's so remarkable is that you were successful right out of the starting gate with your first book, which was a New York Times bestseller. Yeah, it was, um, but it was, uh, it was uh, not a New York Times bestseller, but it was um, on the Sunday Times bestseller list. It was... Just a happy accident, really. It was one of those things. I, I was um, a young married guy. I was depressed. I was waking up at four in the morning in a cold sweat, thinking it's going to be a long day. The doctor wanted to give me antidepressant tablets. Um, all the books I was reading were, weren't telling me the truth. I was looking for answers, and they were saying they've got the truth in their blurb, but they weren't giving it me. Um, if they had it, they weren't sharing it. Um, my wife was afraid of me because I was following around the house like a lost puppy. She'd lost who I was, the essence of who I was. And I'd had a series of these depressions. And I just had this, I, I realised now it was a moment of grace where I just felt this righteous anger. And I thought, I can't live like this anymore. I cannot live like this. I've got a wife. I've got children. I have a life to live. I've got a dharma to follow. I can't live like this. And I just decided there and then that I, instead of, running away from the things I was afraid of instead of hiding from them and covering them um, and being afraid of them, I decided to turn into them, lean into the sharp edges, as the Buddhists say. And at that moment of me deciding that I was going to do something for myself, this idea just fell into my mind like a coin falling through water. And it said, write down everything you're afraid of write down everything you're afraid of and confront it one by one. So I wrote a fear pyramid. I put my least fear on the bottom step, my worst fear on the top step, and I systematically started to confront the things I was afraid of. But the thing that happened before that, which, which is the most important thing, was I remember being very disappointed and, and kind of angry that the books I was looking at weren't telling me where to go and what to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember thinking to myself, when I find the answers, I'm going to tell everybody. I am going to tell everybody. I realized uh, 30 years later that I triggered on the secret of the tree of life. Receive in order to share. If we receive in order to share, we will be given abundance. We'll become, uh, we'll become um, a, a clear path for this divine energy to come down. Um, so that's what I did. That's where the first book come from. I, com I confronted my fears. <laughs> my worst fear was violent confrontation. So I decided, as you do, to become a nightclub bouncer in one of the <laughs> roughest cities in Europe. And I basically just started to tell these basically stories to people and share them. And, and that was my first book, Watch My Back. I wrote about my experiences people thought at the beginning it was a book about a bouncer, but it wasn't. It was about a man that was searching for his stolen autonomy. It was about yeah. me winning back my soul yeah. by confronting all of the things that told me it was not possible to live a, you know, a happy and fulfilling life. 
So that's that's where the book come from. Yeah. It was a I local come, book, but it was steeped in truth. Yeah, I want to come back to that a bit later after we've looked at your books because uh, there's more to this story that needs to be shared. Um, you know, after that book, you became a, an award-winning uh, playwright. You've uh, done screenwriting. Uh, you've worked with well-known actors such as Orlando Bloom and Ray Winstone, and then there are the many books that you've written, many articles, yeah. and the intense amount of studying. I yeah. mean, if yeah. ever I've come across somebody who is absolutely committed and devoted to getting the answers and studying as deep as they can go, it's got to be you. It's a full immersement for me. It's it is. Nothing else. I didn't want to be a, um, a kind of weekend warrior, you know. Mm. Uh, I wanted to... Uh, you know, go really deep. And I, once I reached a certain level, because that's the same as everybody else, I started on the revealed books, the entry-level books, and that led me to some of the philosophers like Milton and uh, Dante Alighieri and, and Blake. Um, and, and I was massively influenced by their works, but remember looking at them and thinking, well, where, where, do they, where does their inspiration come from? Because this is profound. Yeah. Then I realised on the investigation, on doing the rigour, that they were all influenced by the Bibles, Old Testament, New Testament, Gita, you know, the Bhagavatam, the Quran, the, you know, the Guru Granth Sahib, all of these different texts that I couldn't believe were out there, just out there available. And most of them were being given away, you know. So I thought, well, I'll go there. And, of course, to cut a long story short, when I went into those books, kind of open the pages and they slap your face and say what are you doing here you need to go in you need mm. to go inwards so yeah. the books especially the hidden books because obviously you've got the revealed bible but then there's the hidden bible so you might start with uh the old testament you know the the, the pentateuch or the 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 five books of moses and that will lead you to judaism which will lead you to the mystical arm which is kabbalah which will lead you to the exegesis, the explanation, which is, you know, the Zohar. And, and when you go into something like the Zohar, which we'll talk about in a bit, it's, it's another level of reading. It's no longer about reading to understand. It's about the soul taking it in like a barcode. Mm -hmm. And then all of this mystical, mysterious instruction coming from your soul. This is what the Old Testament says in the Talmud. <clears throat> you know, when it says that your soul will teach you. So we don't need other teachers. It's not that we don't, you know, I still go to other teachers because they help me to understand and articulate what it is I've actually experienced. But there was a, there was a secret message in one of them that said, first we do and then we hear. So first we experience. We go out, we experience. We're in the world. We're here to experience. Once we've experienced... We can come away with that seed of experience, that wisdom, and we can develop it. You know, we can we can expand it. We can deepen it. We can water it. We can put it in front of the sun. We can put it in front mm -hmm. of teachers. And suddenly this seed of experience becomes an oak tree of wisdom that has another million seeds in potential. So the books I read, I never really learned anything from the books that I hadn't first experienced. But what mm. the books did was not well, they didn't just help me to understand what I'd experienced, but they helped me to they helped me to deepen and expand what I'd experienced. So in my first book, Watch My Back, which was about my experiences as a nightclub bouncer, um, you know, when I started to do the study on what I'd experienced, I realized that was a metaphysical experience. It wasn't mm. me working as a nightclub bouncer guarding a nightclub door it was about me guarding the doorway to my heart yeah. and if that sounds romantic what it, what the heart in allegory the heart means um it means the will it means so it's so it's a it's a um uh a synonym a synonym for the will so we're not guarding the doorway to the heart literally we're guarding the doorway to the will the will is uh, in in hinduism they would say that the will is the fifth sheath the fifth the fifth layer of protection around the body which is closest to the soul and it is the uh, the causal body or the body of conscious will so i was learning to protect my will and my will is the working arm of the soul my will and my mm. intellect so yeah. when i started to study 
these amazing books with these amazing corporeal and incorporeal teachers, I realized that my greatest metaphysical experience was working at a nightclub bouncer where I was able to see the projection and manifestation of every shadow that was currently residing in me or trying to reside in me. So a very powerful experience, you know. I'm sure. So let's move on to your books. Um, don't know how you managed to cull it down to 10, but we'll work with these 10. The Zohar is your number one. Yeah, the Zohar, um, the, the reason I put that there is because it's the one that's, it's kind of the, the most recent study. It's about 26 volumes. So I had to read full time for about six months. Um, and you at the very beginning of the Zohar, um, and again, the Zohar is, is the explanation of, um, of the Torah or of the Kabbalah, the mystical arm of Judaism. So I'd gone to, to line up with this. What had happened is I'd gone through a period of kenosis, a period of self-emptying, which was very, very traumatic where any old shadows that I had that I'd still had in residence that I wasn't looking at um, were brought to the fore and processed. I think Jung would call this individuation when we bring up unconscious shadows and process them into conscious knowing. So I'd just gone through this kenosis. I was um, metaphysically on my knees. I was, uh, I was like a sensitive nerve. The phone ringing made, made me nervous and made me anxious. I was completely emptied. In order for me to refill and to get this divine connection, I needed to completely empty. So I was going through this period of regeneration. This set of books had been gifted to me three years before. Um, they landed on my doorstep. And when they landed, you know, 20, I think it's 23 volumes, and they're big, thick volumes, and they're heavy, I couldn't even open the box because I knew what was in there, and I knew that I wasn't ready to look at it. When I went through this kenosis and I was empty, I had this message, this small, quiet voice, this message from my soul. Now is the time to read the Zohar. And I can tell you that every single hour of every single day, every single page was painful because my ego was assailed by it. What was left of my shadows were absolutely um were absolutely vaporized in the in the burnt sacrifice of me sitting down and, and reading those books. Mm. At the very beginning, it says you won't understand this. You don't need to understand this. The idea of you not understanding it is that the ego will be affronted. It will try to talk you out of reading it. You will have to subjugate the ego, and then this knowledge can come in. It will it will come in, and it will it will come in like an antiseptic. And it will clean you out and it will also rebuild your inner world. And that's what happened for six months. I, I spent six months studying it. I made 70 pages of notes, um, all of them disparate, none of them connected, just things that jumped out at me intuitively. And then at the end of the, the reading, I went through the 70 pages of notes, reduced them to uh, 35, then reduced them to 10. And eventually I was able, through this process of, uh, of contraction, I reduced it to one word, and that one word was breath. So my next job was to take that seed of breath and go and study breath or spirit or inspiration. So, it was, um, but it really, really full, filled me up, and just in time as well, because I'd written two new books, Notes from the Factory Floor, which was like a confessional uh, memoir, and The Divine CEO, which was a channeled book about creating the divine covenant mm. so that the zohar i'll always feel blessed to have had that um, and i'll always feel grateful to have been able to i, I had the discipline to sit down and do it and I, yeah. i'm my soul read it like a barcode so I'm, I'm still unpicking that i'm still it's still unfolding yeah so book number two i'm not sure how to pronounce this srimad bhagat the Srimad Bhagavatam, yeah. Bhagavatam. The Srimad Bhagavatam was a similar thing earlier in my development. I love Hinduism. This is the reduction, uh, I think it's something like um, 30,000 verses, a reduction of the 500,000 verses of the Vedas. It started when I was, again, going through another regeneration period some years before. I was in Edinburgh. I thought I was dying. My spiritual development wasn't wasn't strong enough at the time to understand I was going through a regeneration. Um, and these, I've had several of these. 
um, and I was walking through the streets of Edinburgh. I was asking for guidance and a guy approached me with a tiny little pamphlet um, and it was verses from the ba uh, Bhagavad Gita. And it was, you know, blue men on the front because Krishna was blue in, the, in all the drawings. And I looked in and it looked very strange and I thought, uh, I'm not sure about this. I looked at the back and it talked about self-sovereignty. So I thought, I need to look at this. So I read this tiny little pamphlet and it really spoke to me, it talked about winning back our autonomy, winning back our sovereignty. Mm. So I recognised it was verses from the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita is a big tome, so I bought the Gita. It was a challenging read, um, and it was all about Prince Arjuna winning his kingdom back. That had been stolen from yeah. by his corrupt <clears throat> cousins. Um, I read the, the Gita. Um, felt quite proud of myself and then realized at the end of the Gita, it was just one chapter of uh, the Mahabharata. So I thought, right, I'll get the Mahabharata. I'm going on holiday. I'll read full time. I read the Mahabharata. It's a huge book and it's an epic. It's an Indian epic. It's thousands of years old. I got to the end and thought, I've, I've read the Mahabharata. I felt very proud of myself. But right at the end, it said, <clears throat> this is just one chapter of the Srimad Bhagavatam, <laughs> which was like 14 volumes. Um, which was, and, and again, I went through the same process. My children bought me the book, uh, the books. I read them full time. <clears throat> and uh, at the end of it, I thought, I really have finished now. And of course, at the end, it said, this is just um, selected verses from the Vedas, which are 500,000 verses long. <clears throat> but what I loved about it, Sandy, was the fact that it, every, every story, every parable, we said the same thing. You have an issue. You have a problem. It's unassailable. You can't fix it. Turn to me. Surrender to me. If you surrender to me, uh, your problem, stepping over your problems will be as simple as stepping over the hoof print of a calf in the mud. When Arjuna is at the battleground in Guru, etc., and the whole world is within this battleground, it's a vast battleground. Lord Krishna, who's his chariot driver, says, if you surrender to me, stepping across this battlefield will be as simple as stepping across the hoof print of a calf in the mud. And that's what it's saying. All of your problems are unattainable. You will not fix them. But if you surrender to me, so it's saying if we surrender to our higher consciousness, if we surrender to the divine satnav, all the answers are there. So I've, the Gita and the Srimad Bhagavatam, I love these books. I got so much from them. But I had to hear it. I had to hear it. I had to read 40,000 verses before it finally sank in. 40,000 verses that were saying the same thing. Yeah. You can't fix this. Surrender to me. You cannot fix this. Surrender to me. And, of course, that's where I am now. I've surrendered. I've surrendered myself to my higher soul, to God, to the universe, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I just take the commands. He says, move left, move right, move forward, stay still push, yield, and everything. This covenant that I've got with God just says, if you do what I ask you to do and go where I ask you to go, write what I ask you to write, everything you need will be provided. So that's my new covenant. Hmm. So then you read, or maybe not then, but at some point, number three on your list is the Holy Quran. What did you take from that? Oh, the Quran. Wow. You know what the strangest thing when I read the Quran? everything was cleared from my diary so that I could sit down and read full time. Cause there's always a danger when you pick up a big book to go into it. And the ego, the ego goes, we don't get this. We don't understand it. Move on, put it away. It's, it's dogma. You know, there's lots of house ghosts that stop us from trying to enter into the, uh, the, the hidden books. Um, so I sat with this book and when I opened the pages, I could smell its aroma. There was, a, there was a divine aroma coming off it, and it made me feel high. And I said to my wife, God, if you, if you, can you smell this? And she smelled it. She said, I can't smell anything. My wife took poorly, not, not, nothing, nothing bad. She just didn't feel very well. And she stayed in bed for a few days because she didn't feel very well. And it enabled me to sit down full time and finish it. Everything moved itself out of the way so I could sit and read this book. And the biggest thing I got from it was uh, basically that uh, 
those who read the Quran, write the Quran. You know, when you look into that book, it's a mirror. If you see hatred, if you see murder, if you see all the, the normal dogma that you expect from a Bible, you're just seeing what's hidden in you. What I seen in this book was love, 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 especially in the final verses where it was poetic. <clears throat> and the, the prophet was told that for every difficulty, we know it's difficult. You're in the great earth, it's difficult. But for every difficulty, we will give you one easy. For every difficulty, we will give you one easy. And also said, look, when you leave this body, you're going to go into a place and there's going to be two queues. And the longest queue is going to be for excuse makers. Do not be an excuse maker. And we all knew what that meant. I knew what it yeah. meant. Everyone knows what it meant. So um, I got loads from that. That led me on to Al-Ghazali. It led me on to, you know, some of the uh, Sufis like um, uh, Rumi and Hafiz. Yeah. Um, it led me on to lots of, lots of um, great imams. So I, I, I still study... Um, I still study the Quran. I still study Islam. You know, I still study some of these great writers. There's a there's a great book called um, Letters to a Disciple by Al Ghazali. Very small book, but one of the best books ever written. Just about him talking to a student who's asking him some telling questions, and it's very beautiful. Mm. So, book number four, Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson by George Gurdjieff. Yeah, well, Gurdjieff has always, I've always considered George Gurdjieff to be my teacher, to be my mm. main teacher, because, because he's a pragmatist. He's like you. He, he wants, he, he's kind of saying, look, if we can't make this work with our finances, with our relationships, you know, with our careers, if we can't make it with our health, what use is of it? What, what's, what's the use of going off and living in a cave? You know, he, 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 his system was called the fourth way. Which, was a, which is a way of combine, uh, combining everything we've heard before, but putting it into everyday use. So Gurdjieff would, would famously create environments, manufactured environments like, a, you know, like an old house somewhere, bring people together for a year and just make them live together and compete, complete you know, different tasks. And he would always bring in an antagonist, someone who naturally unconsciously antagonize people yeah. and he would just watch what rose up and he would say we want us we want you to observe what rises up we want you to observe it but don't engage you we want you to observe it but don't identify with it we don't want you to try and get rid of this pain we just want you to observe it and if you observe it for long enough i think moses would call this the holy gaze it will dissipate um so i loved him because he was kind of saying what you say on your show do the work do the work, do the work. Don't hide from real life. Don't hide from what's inside you. Don't hide from what's in the world. So Gurdjieff was, when I read, I read, again, it's a big tome. It's deliberately esoteric. So it's deliberately used, written in a way to trip up the ego, to make the ego put it down. Just so that you can see how, um, how frightened and how opposed the ego is to anything that's going to mm -hmm. free you. And it, and it offended me so much. On it. I was on a ship in the Caribbean and I nearly threw it overboard. I was so offended by it. Thank you, Mr. Gurdjieff. <laughs> but I read this book all the way through. My eyes were nearly bleeding. Um, and at the very end, I got what I needed. He did this little letter at the end. He said, oh, you, you, uh, you, you brave people, you know, you hardy people. You think you've got something. You think you're somewhere. He said, but one, one negative email and... Uh, you know, you're falling over yourself with grief and one pseudo prize and, and you're congratulating yourself. He said the next phone call could take your autonomy away, your autonomy away like that. And I was so offended because that was me. I was a senior martial artist. I thought I was doing well. I thought I'd got some sovereignty. And Gurdjieff made me realize I hadn't even really started. And it was mm. so upsetting to think oh, I thought I was doing something, you know. <laughs> so I've got loads and loads and loads from Gurdjieff. The more you do, the more there is to do sometimes. <laughs> uh, this, well, it's infinite, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Our potential to finesse and to refine and to expand the intellect and to strengthen the will, it's infinite. Mm. And thank goodness it is. Yeah. So book number five is The Absence of Felicity by Helen Shuckman. 
Yeah. Well, for those that don't know, Helen Schuckman was the was the was the mm. professor who a famous atheist who transcribed the Course in Miracles. Course in Miracles, very very famous book, you know, very revered book. Mm. What I loved about this biography of Helen Schuckman was the fact that she wasn't what you expected. You expected her to be, you know, kind of pious and holy and, and without fault, but she was absolutely affronted by the stuff that was coming through. She was having mystical experiences with Jesus and uh, she was having these miracles happening all around her and bringing through the most profound material, but just continually doubted it because she didn't, she just, because it defied everything she'd learned in science, but yet she still kept putting it down. But there was one story in this that I loved where she had a vision of going to this Edenic place. And in this Edenic place was this very kind man who said to her, look, if you wanted to, you could come here all the time. And she said, well, if I come here, because she's very suspicious, I'd have to bring my things. He said, well, you won't need your things. You won't need anything. Everything is supplied here. And she said, yeah, what, you, what you're, you're telling me already then that there's caveats. that I can't bring my own things. And he said, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying bring them, but you won't need them. And she said, well, if I don't bring my things, how will people know who I am? And he said, oh, that's easy. Just be kind. Just be kind and everybody will know who you are. And that was it. That's the sum of every Bible I've ever read. Just yeah. be kind. And I loved that story. I loved her honesty. I loved uh, the, how painful it was for her to see the truth because she was a, a medical professor so everything she'd learned, you know, um, kind of she had she had to dismiss and just start afresh. And it's obviously the uh, the course, of course in miracles is a very um, oh, uh, beloved by very millions. Beloved, very divine book. Yeah, it's mm. beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So number six is Treasury of the Dharma Eye. Yeah, this is this book took me <laughs> two attempts to read this first time I read it man it was so dry my ego was going I want miracles I want sitters I want promises of you know all of these tricks that I can play in mm -hmm. the world and I want to know how to make riches and it was so dry it was talking all about what felt like very mundane things to me and it was physically painful to read I only got through a few pages but I was attracted to the fact that they said it was probably the most intellectual and most revered book ever written on Buddhism by, by a monk called Dojan. So I got rid of it. I ended up going into other places. I went to the, the sugar highs, the entry-level books, but they weren't working for me anymore. So eventually, um, actually, it was, it was uh, when I was going through this recent um, uh, regeneration that I that I went back into Dojan and I went through it and I systematically read. I've developed enough discipline to sit down and read even if I don't understand mm. so I started to read it again and it was a different book I was in a different place yes and I loved it I loved him and he was kind of saying you know you're not here to be happy you're not here to find happiness you're here to learn this is a school you know they said this is the great earth, even the Buddhas come here to perfect the way. That's how difficult it is. The Buddhas come here to perfect the way. So it is difficult. Um, but again, I read the whole book and there was lots of stuff in it that were pointers, putting me in the right direction. But there was one thing right at the very end, tiny little throwaway story that summed it all up. <clears throat> and it basically said, oh, I don't know all the scriptures. I don't know, you know, all the Dharma. I don't know all that stuff. He said, all I do is I sit, and I sit and I watch my cow on the field. When it wanders off the field, I just guide it back on again. When it wanders into somebody else's garden, I just guide it back again. He said, that cow has become so loyal now, I don't even have to do it anymore. He said, it, when, I, when I look at it, it just falls at my feet and it wants to do everything I ask it to do. It's no longer a cow, he said. Now it is a, um, what did he call it, a, a white bull. And, of course, the white bull in Buddhism was famous yes. for the Buddha body. So it was kind of saying, look, you know, Eckhart Tolle's technique, this is just about observing the thoughts and recognizing that you are the observer. You are the witness. You choose what you, what you engage in, what you don't engage, what you identify with and what you don't identify with. You choose what you give life to. That's it. You choose. 
And that was, I had to get right to the end of something like 1600 pages before that gem came. And even then it meant work because I had to, it was written symbolically, so I had to read on and Unravel. you know, yeah. analyze all that. So again, I, I uh, love Dojan because he says it's just one thing. It's just one technique. And that one technique is to be the observer of your th thoughts and, uh, you know, have the ability to uh, with, win your autonomy back. So you have the courage and the discipline to be able to choose what you engage and what you give life to and what you don't engage. So it's kind of saying you're the God within this body. Yeah. Yeah. So book number seven, Daughter of Fire by Irina Tweedy. Yeah, I, I love Irina Tweedy. There's a great story with this as well because um, it's another big book and it's, a, it's an autobiography about when she trained in India. Um, she's a Russian-British Sufi and she trained with a fa very famous Sufi in India. Um, and when she went to India, she was very privileged. She was very um, self-possessed, but she was also very like uh, matronly, very kind of like, um, I'm, a, I'm a woman. I'm an educated woman. I need to be treated in a certain way. And of course, all that privilege had to go. She had to find complete humility. Her teacher said to her, I want you to write a diary of everything that happens over the next year and a half. So this, is, this was the diary she wrote about her very revealing, very graphic and very didactic um, experiences. But what I loved about it was I got it and it was one of those times when I was in a hurry and I was going, this is a big book, um, back to there again. Do I want to read all this? So I was skipping it. I was trying to get to the juicy bits and all the wrong things to do. When, you know, you, when you've got a teacher in your house, you've got to respect it. This isn't a book. You know, this, this is a, an embodied spirit. This is, this is spirit infused into ink, and it's coming into my house to teach me, and I'm trying to rush it, and I'm trying to bypass certain sections. So I'm doing this, and I can feel the alarm in my body. I can feel that I want to urinate more, and I can feel like my adrenaline coming up, and I can feel my ego saying, put it down. We don't need to read this. You know, it's an entry-level book. It's, you're, you're too good for all this, all the normal nonsense that the ego tries to tell you. So I'm in town with my wife and um, I'm queuing up for a cup of tea. And in front of me, hardly noticed, is an old lady and she's kind of dawdling a little bit. And I'm trying to get to my spoons and my, you know, for my tea. And I very, very, very carefully just squeeze past her. And, and, and I'm not exaggerating. Suddenly she's in front of me, staring up at me. And she said, you are rushing me. You are rushing me. And I just felt the room disappear. It was a very strange experience. I felt the room disappear. I felt myself, uh, I felt everything around us going black. It was just me and her. And I just said, oh, I'm so sorry. I said, I, I, I said I'm so sorry. I said, I, I, I had no intention of rushing you. And I realized we were no longer talking about, you know, the spoons and the cup of tea. And she grabbed my arm. She said, you could have hurt me. And then she kissed me. She literally leaned forward. She must have been in her 70s. She leaned forward and kissed me and then giggled and then just disappeared into the cafe. And I just kept thinking, she's so familiar. What, she's so familiar. And I went home and I thought, I wonder. So I went home and I went on the internet and I looked up some old black and white photographs of Irene Tweedy and it was her. It was her. And uh, you, you were rushing her. Yeah, and she was telling me, don't rush me. And I went back to the book and I poured over it. I took my time and I just apologised. And I said, I'm going to take my time with this. It was a very, very didactic book. It's a very powerful book for anybody that wants to understand the esoteric arm of, you know, um, the work we do. And then when I gave it to my daughter to read, I said, have a read of this. It's very powerful, but do not rush her. Do not. <laughs> she will turn up in a cafe somewhere near you. <laughs> yeah, she'll haunt you. <laughs> so I love her. I've loved it ever since. That she would turn up in a cafe, that yes. she would turn up and speak to me, that she would turn that she thought enough of me and my journey to turn up. Yeah. That happens to me quite a lot when I was reading the, the Bag of Tan. When I got to the Bag of Tan, which is an advanced read, I had a message from um, uh, a Hindu guru who someone had mentioned that I was reading the Bag of Tan and he invited me around. 
and I sat with him and he introduced me to the temple in London and I started to train in the temple in London. But he told me two things when we met, two things like, he'd, like I'd walked in and I was in x-ray and he just read me. And he said, these are two things, one that you need to do and one that you need to stop doing. And, I, and, and he was right. Both of, them, both of them he was right on. And that both of them I changed. As I left that room, I changed them. I didn't wait till the next day. I went back to my wife and I said, this is what I'm going to do. And it deepened my journey. But, um, but that came as a, as a gift because I was doing the work. Irene Tweedy turned up in my life because I was doing the work, even though I was rushing her. She knew I was looking at, you know, she knew I was looking at the difficult problems of consciousness. I wasn't, I wasn't soft soaping it, you know. Yeah. So, book eight, what did you find in the New Testament that earned yeah. its place on this list. Yeah, but it's really weird because when I first sent you the list, it wasn't on there. And I thought, why isn't it on there? Why didn't I put that on there? Um, and because I, I, my focus of prayer is Jesus Christ. I have a, I have a, uh, a rosary um, and culturally that really suits me. So as much as I find God through everything, I find God through, through nature, through a tree, through just about through everything, like panpsychism, I see consciousness in everything. My focus of prayer is always through the cross. So I thought I need to put this in. And it, and it forced me to look at why I loved this book. And I loved it because it, it's, it's um, it, first of all, it's separating Jesus and the Christ. So people talk about Jesus Christ. So first of all, it's saying Jesus was a man, but Christ is an energy. And Christ was the energy that he received when he aligned himself to righteousness, when he aligned himself to his own potential. And to do that, he had to go through the 12 stations of the cross, which we all go through, in order to um, subdue the passions, clear himself out, make himself a better conjurer. But what I liked about him and, and what I loved about him and loved about his message, he was saying, he's not like a lot of gurus who were saying, I'm special um, and this is for me and you probably won't get there, you probably won't ever make it. He was saying, what I'm doing now, these miracles I'm causing, these miracles I'm making happen, you can do too. My potential is your potential. I'm going to show you through this parable of the 12 stations and the crucifixion that this is possible for everybody. So the crucifixion is really about, um, when they talk about being Christed, they talk, it really means that we're being magnified by a thousand times. You know, so we, we, we go from a hundred watt bulb to a thousand watt bulb. But to get there, we have to go through this subjugation of the passions. Um, and I love the courage of him, because if you imagine what it must have been like, it, people talk about Jesus and they talk about the miracles, but they don't talk about the fact that he must have been a tremendous threat to the authorities, to the, mm. to the prevailing religions, you know, um, to anybody that was anywhere close to him. He was bringing people back to dead, from the dead. He was creating miracles. He was defying science. These aren't just, these aren't just like allegories or um, metaphors. He was literally defying science. Um, and, you know, the moment he started to do that, you know, they nailed him to the wood. See, could, if you could just imagine now, if I started to openly do miracles around people, um, how much of a threat, how, how I would suddenly get noticed by um, authorities, by government, you know, by gangsters, by positive forces, by negative forces, I would be noticed. I would only have to do one legitimate miracle openly, openly that someone could see, and my life would never be the same again. There would be people trying to kill me. I love the courage of the fact that he, that he said, I'm going to do this, and at some point you will do it too, and at some point it will become ordinary because it is part of the human condition. It's part of the human potential. So he was the first through the door. And the first through the door always gets blooded. Mm. Yeah. We're going to have to speed it up a little bit. I mean, I'm absolutely okay. fascinated by what you're sharing. And I know, and I would heartily encourage people to go to your page on the website and read your descriptions of these books because we're just skating over the top of them yeah. here. And yeah. they're very deep and they're very profound. Um but we do have a bit of a time constraint. Absolutely, so, yeah. Um, number nine, 100,000 songs of Miller Reaper. Yeah. Well, Miller Reaper 
I, I didn't really know Milarepa until he appeared to me in a vision. Um, again, I've gone through lots of cleansing in my life. I was sexually abused at the age of 11. As a displacement, when I was an adult, I built myself into a machine and I became very violent and became a nightclub bouncer. And I accumulated a lot of negative karma. Millery appeared in front of me in a dream, in a vision, more real than this, more real than the, the dimensions around us. And I looked at him. I didn't notice Millery, but just looked at this little green guy, um, very small. And my wife was with me in the dream. And uh, he just looked at me and I didn't trust him. I didn't trust teachers because I'd been abused by a teacher. And, and he looked at me and he just tipped his head like that. And he said, what have they done to you, Jeffrey? And I just burst into tears. I was so, I just said to, the, said to him, I said, you know, I, I was crying and sobbing. And he reached into me, into my shoulder, and he pulled out a web. And he, and he just looked at it. And I just said, I don't know how to get them out of me. And that's what I said. He, he asked me for money. I gave him some, but that made me even more suspicious. But he took the money without looking at it and passed it on, which was saying, there's a, there's a cost wasn't about money and I didn't really understand what he'd shown me but when I did the rigor on it and I took it away and I developed it and studied it what he was saying to me was that you were abused at the age of 11 this person bypassed all of your defenses and he has taken over your causal body so he's taken over your autonomy he's taken over the um, conscious the body of the conscious will he's stuck there in order to get him off this parasite, this negative cognition, you have to do the work. That's the price. The price is that you have to do the work. The work is about looking at it. It's what Jung says. We have to have the courage to bring up these monsters from the deep, stand in front of them, these three-dimensional monsters, and, and gaze at them until they become two-dimensional cartoons, until they finally dissipate. And at that point, I hadn't got the courage to do it. So reading Milarepa's opus, and the reason I was, I was attracted to Milarepa particularly was because he was a murderer turned saint, and I associated with that because I'd been very violent. Um, and I realized it was Milarepa because, again, I'd got this image of him in my head, and I started to scour the internet for images of uh, ancient gurus, and he came up, and he was the one that was in my vision, and he was green because he... He uh, lived in a cave for many years and, and only ate nettles and drank nettle tea. But it was him. So I read 100,000 songs in Milarepa. Again, it's a beautiful, poetic book, but it's also very didactic. It talks about how he battled with demons, how he contracted before he could expand, how he expanded as a way of contracting. It was just a lot of uh, techniques hidden within the verses. So a very, very beautiful book. Mm -hmm. Book number 10, um, this one turns up again and again and again, and I don't mm. think any of this is surprised. It is The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Yeah, I, I thought about um, not placing it on the list because I knew so many people would, but I just thought that would be disingenuous because pretty much every I get a lot of people writing to me through my Instagram page, and I've had people writing to me for years and years. Um, and I always recommend this book because it is, I would say it's the best book in the world at the moment for this specific technique, what I call the holy gaze. Um, there's a piece in the Old Testament where they talk about Moses um, who killed an Egyptian just by looking at him. And in the Old Testament, um, uh, in the Zohar, they, they describe the, the Egyptian as just a, a, another name for the ego or for the evil, evil inclination. And... Uh, this he looked he was able to destroy this evil inclination or this negative cognition just by observing it so Eckhart Tolle's technique is bona fide it's also ancient it has great lineage and he's I think he's the best person in the world who describes this technique he describes it beautifully and every time you go into the book you get more and more someone said to me I said to someone recently you need to read the power of now he goes he smiley face kind of said, uh, yeah, I read it 10 years ago. And I said, no, read it again because it'll be different. Yes. This is the technique. This is the technique for locating the observer, strengthening the observer, 
and learning to choose what we think and what we don't think. Not learning to control our thoughts, learning to choose what we think and what we don't think. So basically, Eckhart's book is, is a book on deliverance. It's a book on exorcism. It's a way of exercising negative thoughts that are housed in us. It's a way of uh, exercising old beliefs, old scripts. And it's also a way of protecting ourselves from the, the roaming line of perversion that's around everywhere all the time. So it's, I can't recommend it highly enough. I would say that Eckhart Tolle is the mystic of our age. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He was one of our bookworms. And uh, if someone hasn't read it, they can go to the website, look him up and download um, some information there. Um, I want to talk about, I'm not going to talk about the 11th book that you wanted to slip in unless we have time. But I want to talk about your most recent feature film, Retaliation, which stars Orlando Bloom, yeah. uh, which has received great acclaim in the USA. And it's a biopic about the metaphysical power of forgiveness. Now, I'm having seen your TED Talk uh, on YouTube, which is a profound, profound experience for anyone. Um, very poignant, very compelling. Did this arise after you had found forgiveness for your abuser? Yeah, forgiveness for me has been... <clears throat> It's been a piecemeal event. It's happened gradually over time. You know, it was, um, you know, I, I kind of had this abuse happen to me when I was a kid. I built up a body, I built up armory, I built up techniques so that I could defend myself against people like this in the world. But obviously I realized I was building all of these layers around a carapace. You know, it's like a carapace around, uh, around my soul. So although I felt I was stopping things coming in, I was actually stopping myself from coming out. I was actually stopping myself from becoming free. Yeah. So um, I, when, I, I, when I first forgave the person who abused me, I realized straight after forgiving him that my forgiveness was a quiet conceit. I had this belief that I had the power to pardon him, the power to forgive him. And I recognized after much investigation that as humans, we don't have the ability to forgive we are not in the sense of pardoning somebody. This, the crime he committed was a crime against law, against Dharma, against God. So that's the only place he can be forgiven. Um, what I can do is I can give him over. I can, say to, I can let him go. And in, and in giving him over, in, in forgiving him, giving him back over to reciprocity or to karma or to God, I, I am forcing him to uh, stand in front of his sin and I'm also allowing myself to step away and repair and recover. I also realized after I'd forgiven him, because I felt very proud of myself, and I thought, I've done this. I've got the ability to physically kill him because I've trained myself, and I decided to forgive him. But as I walked away, because I, I think I'd used his, um, his abuse against me, I, it blinded me. It made, it, it made my whole life was focused around what he'd done wrong and how terrible it was and how I wasn't protected. But of course, it, it, that stopped me from looking at all of the things I'd done wrong. And I'd done a lot of things wrong. So, I, you know, people say it's, it's much harder to forgive yourself. But I also realized we can't even forgive ourselves. We can atone. We can repent. You know, repent in Buddhism means to repair or to return or, or to find refuge. We can do that by looking at the things we've done, by, by initially by stop doing what we're doing, and then by looking at the things that we've done, taking full responsibility for them, and then returning back to our nature, which is love. So I realized I had the power to repent and to repair, but I didn't have the power to forgive myself or to forgive him. But there was a power around me that could, could forgive. So when I forgave him, I realized that I was giving him over to reciprocity. Um, and I think six months after I forgave him, he committed suicide. And then, of course, when I sat there with my bloated pride, thinking how good I was to forgive this guy, suddenly the blind spot I had was cleared, my view was clearer, and I suddenly realized the hideous things I'd done in my own life how violent I'd been. I'd been a criminal, you know. I'd um, uh, violently abused people as a doorman. I'd 
been physical with them, I've had affairs, I've been a criminal. All of these things are rationalized. All of these things I didn't look at, I never looked at them because I was too busy looking at what other people had done wrong. You know, I'd, I'd, um, I think if I'd have been around the, at the time of Moses, it would have been the 13th commandment and it would have had my name on it. So I'd done so many things wrong. And I realized that I didn't need to concern myself with what other people were doing wrong. I needed to concern myself with what I was doing wrong and I needed to repair that and I needed to repair it quickly. And in order to repair it, I needed to use Eckhart's technique. I needed to watch them rise up, these sins, these errors, these mistakes. I needed to look at them, take full responsibility for them, completely immerse myself into them and then let them go. And as you know, that's a very painful process. Um, and writing the, the retaliation film was, was um, part catharsis. of that. Yeah, it was a catharsis. It was an atonement. It was a refuge. It was a repair. It was my sojourn into hell. You know, um, in the Old Testament, they would call it going down to Egypt. It was my sojourn into hell. I had to go inside myself like a pin in a crab shell, pulling out all the last juicy remnants. I had to bring out everything. Everything had to be exposed. All of the guilt, all of the shame, all of the anger, all of the dissonance, all of the blame. I had to bring it all out. I had to process it. So I wrote about it in a play, in a film, in a book, in articles. I talked about it. Um, and in doing that, I was able to cleanse it. And retaliation was, was the final version of it. So I'd written about it in Watch My Back. I'd written a film called Romans 1220, which went all around the world. I'd written a, a very visceral play called Fragile, which was like an exorcism. Um, and then I did the film with Orlando, which was called Retaliation, which was just going into the corners and bringing out the stuff that I was too afraid to look at. Once I was able to do that, I was able to start working on, um, you know, just kind of cleaning myself up, getting rid of all of the detritus from within me. But, yeah, it was a very powerful film, very difficult to sit down and not just write, but write again and again and again because, you know, a lot of rewrites in films. But I realised that God was working through me and he was saying, just look again, just look again. There's a bit more there. Don't leave anything hidden. This is a lovely thing in Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse when he said, if we don't see these things through to the end, we have to go back and start all over again from the very yeah. beginning. So see it through to the end. And that's what I was encouraged to do with the TED Talk. I was doing a documentary with um, uh, Guy Ritchie about the ego, which I was talking about that, uh, did retaliation. I was writing, a, you know, I was, I was working at the National Theatre on, on a play that I was doing. So I was... I was kind of excavating in lots of different areas at the same time, and all of it was painful. All of it was worth it. Mm. All of it was worth it. Yeah. So your your last your latest book is the Divine CEO creating a divine covenant. Uh, obviously, it's not a business book. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about that before we have to close. Um, that's basically really what we've been talking about now. It's, it is, it's yeah, about yeah. it's about um, saying rather than just you know, rather than just working the vegetable realm or the animal realm. Judaism talks about the vegetable realm, the animal realm, the human realm, and the highest potential is the human realm. So the vegetable realm is the masses, and the and the and the animal realm is kind of the entrepreneurs and the businessmen and the money makers. And then the human realm is where we no longer work for ourselves. We no longer work from our own autonomy. We work for God or we work for uh, divine justice. So um, this was me starting to work on cleaning away all of the personal ambitions, all of the ego stuff, all of the stuff that parts of me that needed to be validated, that needed to be loved, that needed to find happiness, that needed to earn money. It was looking at all of the things, all of the temporal things, and saying, let's clean all these up one by one. Um, I think in Christian theology, they call it apophatic theology. So we don't know what God is, but we know what he isn't. So I started to clean away everything I knew wasn't God, the jealousies, the anger, the greedy ambition, you know, the accumulation. I started to gradually work on cleaning all that away, basically by not engaging it. And by closing down any areas of my life where I was engaged in doing that. 
Um, and as I started to contract all those things, of course, my conscious net automatically started to expand. And as it starts to expand, you pop through the physical, you pop through the psychological and boom, you go into the metaphysical. That's when you start to, the Buddhists would call it a clear view, where you start to see a wider perspective and you can connect to your highest potential. So then you're no longer working off your own means. You're clicking into this higher soul that says, ah, you know, this is like, um, um, you know, like the divine matrix or the divine blueprint. And it says, there's a voice that says, oh, this is Jeff. This is where he is. This is what he wants. This is what his dharma is. This is where he's meant to go. So we can help remove a few more things. So we've got a clear path and then we can start communicating his part in the great plan. That's what the divine covenant is. It's moving everything out of the way so that my lower soul, what they call in Judaism, the animal soul and my higher soul can join together and just serve from that place. And that's, that's obviously the place of miracles, the place of siddhas. Um, yeah. So all of the books, all the prolific writing, the ability to sit down and read books and understand them, they're, they're all, that, that, all of that is grace. All of that is a gift, um, you know, from me doing the work. Um, so the divine CEO is, is my process of how, how I did that and how I continue to work on that and the gifts that come from that, the graces that come from that. Well, you said in your keywords, one of the things that you um, uh, described yourself as is a rigor lover. And yeah. uh, clearly, you know, <laughs> that is so true. I mean, I don't know where one finds such discipline and dedication, um, but it's, from it's pain. astonishing. From, from pain. pain, from crisis. I was in crisis. Mm. I was in deep crisis. All the doors were closed to me. All the doors in the world were closed to me. So if there's some kids out there now watching who feel as though every door has been closed to them, good. I, I am with you and I feel your pain and I have, I have empathy. But that means that God is calling you to turn inwards. When all of the external doors close, it means you're asked to go inwards and seek the only teacher you will ever need, which is your own soul. Your own soul will teach you. There's a lovely sign in the old thing in the Old Testament, very didactic. It says, tell them to build a temple and I will reside in them. It's amazing. Build a temple. We build a temple by doing the things we said, getting rid of all of the limiting temporal things and just create, you know, just exposing what is real, what is permanent, what is, what is always there. So my whole life has been about building the temple and I've been led to the right books, the right teachers, the right podcasts, the right articles, the right people. You know, they even turn up in cafes in Coventry. There you go. Yes. Yeah. They <laughs> even come back. <laughs> so the rigor is there because I've been directed to do the rigor and the martial arts has taught me to be very disciplined. So I can do the work even if the work's uncomfortable. I can yeah. do the work even if the work burns. I recognize that there is no growth in comfort. I am not here to looking to be happy. This is a classroom. I, I, want, to, I want to contract and expand. Um, and ironically, that makes me happy. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, that must make you happy. Yeah. It does. Yeah, it does. Because every day, that's what I do. There's nothing yeah. in my life at all. And it's took me five years to contract to this. But there's nothing in my life um, that doesn't come from a place of love. Everything I do in my life, from what I read, what I write, my walks, my conversations with my wife, with my friends, everything comes from that desire to serve God. Um, whereas before, 20% of my life or 10% of my life was, you know, aimed at the divine and the other 95% was aimed at getting followers and making a living. Um, and I was guided to reverse that. And so it's, I'm not dipping in and out of prayer once a day uh, or once a week. You know, I'm waking up talking to God. I'm talking to God all day. I go to sleep at night talking to God. There are no doubts in my mind about God, no doubts at all. The only doubts I have are my ability to handle the energy that he puts through me because sometimes it's overwhelming. Well, I say it's overwhelming, it's not because I haven't been overwhelmed. But it's, it is very powerful if I don't manage it. 
because I do have a job to, ma- you know, we have, we have to manage it, don't we? It's a very, very real energy, yeah. very real um, and yeah. beautiful power, but uh, it's, it's uh, not, not good for the ego. If the ego tries to grab hold of it, it gets burned very quickly. Yeah. Jeff, um, from my point of view, this has been uh, so enlightening, so instructive, so enjoyable, uh, pretty amazing, because I don't think I've ever met anyone quite like you. <laughs> and um, your, your contribution to the No BS Spiritual Book Club Library, I think, is very, very profound. Thank so you. thank you. Thank you for taking the time and putting your you know, discipline and fierce attention that you have um, to work for us so that well, we can benefit from much. that. Uh, thank you, and thank you for inviting me on. I love your site. I love what you do. Um, so I'm, I'm, I feel very honoured to be here. Thank you, Jeff. And with that, thank you to you at home as well. In if you want to see any previous videos in this series, um, you can go to our YouTube channel. You can subscribe there. You can also go to the video page at the No BS Spiritual Book Club dot com where you can sign up to our newsletter and you'll be the first to know who's coming up next. Um, this particular interview will be edited and it will be on the website and on YouTube within a week. So um, if you want to watch it again, that's the place to go. That's it for us. Thank you very much. And I look forward to being with you at the same time next week. <laughs>